Well, good morning, Golden Corner Church. I'm so glad you're here, but I want you to know I'm glad to be here. I'm just excited about being in church and being in church with you. And uh, this morning, I want to continue a sermon series entitled Into the Wild. And this will be our fourth sermon in the series, and we're using our Bibles, if you're visiting with us for the first time, we're using our Bibles to travel along with the Israelites as they follow God through a wilderness. Now, we've got a reason for this. My purpose in this is I'm trying to help those of you who have chosen to follow God prepare yourselves for what might await you on the journey in front of you. And I feel that's important because, in my experience, I have seen so many people start well, but somewhere along the line... They stop following God, and I think one of the main reasons is I don't feel that they were adequately prepared for what they were going to face. And so that's my objective in this. And with that being said, are you ready to continue our little expedition this morning? Okay, good deal. Then grab a topo map, make sure you got a compass, and let's go back into the wild, okay? This morning we're going to be looking at a story found in Numbers 13 and 14. We're going to read a few verses together, but before we do, let me set the stage and tell you what's happening. The Israelites have followed God all the way through the wilderness. They've come now to the very border of the land that he has promised them. All they've got to do now is cross the Jordan River and go in and begin to take what God is giving them. At this point, God spoke to Moses, whom he had appointed as as his leader of the Israelites. And he said, I want you to do something. I want you to pick out one leader from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And I want you to send them into the land, and I want them to explore it. And so Moses did that. Picked out 12 different guys and gave them the assignment. He said, you're going to go in, you're going to explore this land. Here's what I'm interested in. I'm interested in the land itself, and I'm interested in the people who live there. He said, I want you to look at the land. I want you to know something. Is the soil fertile or is it poor? Is this a land that has trees or is it barren? Uh, If you could, could you bring us some of the uh, samples of the fruit that you find there? As far as the people go, I want to know, are there few or many? Are they weak or strong? Do they live in open camps or do they live in fortified cities? And so these guys go into this land. They spend 40 days there, Sam, 40 days exploring and they come back and they're they're about to share their report with Moses here's what we found but in their presence there's also some of the Israelites have gathered around they're all excited they're eager to hear what these men have found now I want you to start reading with me verse number 27 said this was their report to Moses we enter the land you sent us to explore and it is indeed a bountiful country A land flowing with milk and honey, here is the kind of fruit it produces. You say, what what does this mean? Land flowing with milk and honey means it was extremely fruitful, extremely fertile soil. Uh, These men were confirming what everybody had hoped. Man, God is really on the brink of blessing us in a great way. They had brought back a sample of fruit. They brought back a cluster of grapes. Now get this, the cluster of grapes was so big and so heavy, the only way they could carry it was to put it on a pole between two men and them carry it on a pole. And so they've got the, they've got the results here. This land is everything God promised and maybe more. Now we're traveling with them, right? So you're in this crowd, you're, you're hearing this, you see the grapes. What are you thinking? What are you feeling? 
Man, you got to be feeling some excitement, right? you got to be thinking to yourself, whew, the wilderness was tough, but it's going to all be worth it when we get in that land. you got to be feeling incredibly blessed, grateful for your children and what they're going to be enjoying, that they're going to have something better maybe than you had experienced. And so you got all these great emotions, you know, coursing through your body, through your mind, and, you, and all of a sudden you hear them continue their report. Look at verse 28. Uh, but, they said. Now at this point, i got to believe that people's heads kind of snap to attention. And they're thinking, but, but what? Look what they said. But the people living there are powerful. And their towns are large and fortified. We even saw giants there, the descendants of Anak. The Amalekites, oh, they'd already had a round with them. They live in the Negev. And the Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country. The Canaanites live along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea and all along the Jordan Valley. What they're saying is these big, bad people living in fortified cities, they're everywhere in that land. Everywhere. We're going to have to fight and claw tooth and nail against opponents that are clearly superior to us if we pull this off. What they're saying is, yes, the land is great, but we got a big, big problem. Well, the people are reading between the lines. And these, and there were twelve of these guys. Ten of these guys are the ones who are offering this, but. And there were two of the guys that didn't feel this way. Their names were Caleb and Joshua. But the people are picking up on what these ten guys are insinuating. We can't pull this off. We can't do this. We think, based on what we have seen, based on what you know, we have witnessed, that probably what we need to do is pull the plug on this. We need to back off of this idea of going in the land. Now, Caleb, one of these guys, he senses a change in the mood of the crowd. Obviously, people were starting to murmur, uh, you know, and kind of talking under their breath to each other and expressing their discontent, their dissatisfaction with what they're hearing. And so look what Caleb did, verse number 30. But Caleb tried to quiet the people as they stood before Moses. He said, let's go at once to take the land. He said, two key words here, we can, we can certainly conquer it. Look how the rest respond, verse number 31. But the other men who explored the land with him disagreed. They said, we can't. I'm telling you, we can't. This was 10 to 2, 5 to 1 odds here. So they, listen, we can't go up against them. They're stronger than we are. And then the Bible said that these 10 guys proceeded to start going throughout the entire camp of Israel, telling these people, spreading this negativity, spreading this negative report among the people. And you know what they accomplished with their words? The Bible said they absolutely talked the people out of following God. They discouraged them from following God any further. I don't think we need to. It would be wise on our part not to go any further. Chapter 14 tells us that that night, all throughout the Israelite community, you could hear weeping. Hearts were broken. People were sobbing. You know why? You want to talk about a major disappointment. This is a major disappointment. The Bible goes on to say that they lifted their voices together in a chorus of protest against Moses and Aaron. They blamed Moses and Aaron. Said, "You know, you, you, you're, you're to blame here. You're the fault. 
They said things like, you know what we ought to do? We ought to pick a new leader and have them lead us back through the wilderness, back through the Red Sea, and back in Egypt. That's what we ought to do. This is, they said, you know what? We're not doing This would not be good for our families. What would happen to our wives? What would happen to our children? We're all going to be devoured. We'll all end up being killed. It would have been better to die in Egypt or die in the wilderness than go into this land and die in battle. Moses and Aaron simply fell to their face, and I think they were praying, Jimmy. I think that's all they need to do is, man, we're in a a mess. This is bad. And they began to pray, and then Joshua and Caleb stepped up, and they began to try to plead with the crowd again. And and they said, basically, they said, what about God? I think we're leaving God out of the equation here. We're leaving God out of this decision. Are we forgetting that this is what he wants? This is what this whole journey has been about. He's delivering us. What about God? What about what he wants? What about the fact that he's with us? What about the fact that he's promised to help us? We've already seen him whip the Amalekites once. What are, you, what are we thinking here? And you know what the people said? They looked at one another and said, you know what we ought to do? We ought to get us a bag of rocks and stone these two birds to death. About that time, God showed up and God spoke up and he said to Moses, uh, you best back out of my way because I'm about to kill them all. You say he did not. Yeah, he did. He said, Moses, I'm going to kill every one of them. I'm going to kill every last one of them and we're just going to start all over with just you. Just you. You know what Moses said? Moses pleaded with him said, please don't do that. Please He didn't pray that prayer for their sake. He prayed that prayer for God's sake. He said, God, what would the Egyptians think if if you had enough power to deliver the Israelites, you had enough power to get them through the wilderness, but you didn't have the ability to get them in the land. For your name's sake, I'm asking you to do something different. Don't destroy them, forgive them. Don't destroy them, forgive them. You know what God said? Okay, because you ask it, that's what I'll do. I'm not going to destroy them. But he said, here's the deal. I'm going to forgive them. But every one of them, 20 years and above, everyone old enough to make an informed decision, they will never possess the land that I'm giving them. They will never step a foot on it. They'll never enjoy it. Not one moment of one day for the rest of their lives. That's my sentence. So you tell them that. The deal is off the table. The opportunity is gone and gone for good. Never going to happen to that group of people. Tell them that I want them to turn around tomorrow and go back into the wilderness, into the wild. And he said, here's what they're going to do. They're going to die in that desert. You know what he's essentially sentencing them to? A life of only existing from this point on. Going through the motions. Every day, just just another stepping stone to the grave. You're going to exist, but not live. That was the penalty. Now, we've gone into the wild far enough this morning that I think there's, a, there's an obvious lesson and a really good lesson that we've got to learn from this. And the lesson is this. God won't make you follow him. You got that? God will not make you follow him. God had a wonderful plan for these Israelites, and the plan was to give them a land of their own, an incredibly fruitful land, as a blessing. God's plan was to bless these people with something incredible. All they had to do was follow him. That's all they got to do, just follow him. 
And so they did. They followed him right out of Egypt. They followed him all the way through the wilderness. They get to the border of the land, and they make a decision. We're not going to follow you anymore. We're done. How did God react? Well, the first thing it did was it made him really, really angry. And you say, why was that? Because their refusal to follow said a couple of things about God. Number one, it said to him, we don't really trust you to lead us anymore. We don't think we can trust you. The second he said was, we don't really respect you because even though it's what you want, we've made a decision it's not what we want, and we're going with what we want over what you want. And because they were making these statements through their actions, it ticked God off. Moses had this little prayer, and after the prayer, God wasn't so ticked off. And in essence, what he said to them is, you don't want to follow me? Okay. You don't have to. That's your call. That's your choice. It's your decision to make 100%. And so if you don't want to follow, you don't have to follow. I'm not going to make you. Now, God's got a wonderful plan for us. We've, I've mentioned it in every one of these sermons. Jesus said in John 10, 10, my purpose is to give them, speaking of those whom he saved, a rich, satisfying life. Where at? On earth. A life not necessarily, necessarily rich in wealth or in things, but a life rich in things like happiness and peace and contentment. And, you know, that's God's plan for us. And how do, you, how do we go about experiencing that life? Some translations call it the life to, life to the full. How do we go about that? All we got to do is follow. All we have to do is follow. And that's where he's taking us. That's the destination he has in mind as we follow him. But here's the deal. God won't make you follow him. Let's, let's maybe be clear on what I'm talking about with following. Following is something God expects of every Christian, every believer. It's something he calls each and every one of us to do. This is what I want. I want you to follow me. Let me give you a quick definition of that. People who follow him see God as their mentor, God as their guide, God as their authority figure. That's how they view him. So they dedicate their lives to learning from their mentor, listening to their guide, and obeying their authority figure or the Lord. That's what I'm talking about. And this is what I'm saying. God wants every one of us to devote our lives to that, but this is his thing. You make the call. You get to decide. Do you want to do that or not? He won't make you do that. You say, if I don't, am I still forgiven? Yeah. Still saved, right? Still going to heaven. Mm -hmm, Sure are. But you do understand that if you decide against it, there are consequences to your decision. These people were still his people, weren't they, Scott? He still loved them. He still took care of them. But there were consequences to their decision. And the consequence was this. Everything I delivered you for, everything I led you through this wilderness to give you, you never get. That's gone. You and I need to understand that when we make the decision, if we do make the decision, I'm not following him. Heaven, forgiveness and heaven are enough for me, Ronnie. They're just enough for me. When we make that decision, you understand that the rich, satisfying life is off the table. Ain't one way to get there. That's to follow. 
And if you make the decision, I'm not following him or I'm not following him anymore, I promise you that's the part of life. You miss everything between the day you were saved and the day you get to heaven. Everything God had planned for you, that's off the table. That's gone. There are consequences to your decision. God won't make you follow him, but you need to understand that if you decide not to, there's a cost. You need to prepare yourself for that. You need to prepare yourself for the fact that he's going to let you make the decision. And following God is not a decision you make once and go, that's it, I'm, mm-mm. it's a decision you make every morning. you got a big decision to make every morning of your life. And you need to prepare yourself for that. You say, how would I prepare myself for that? you got to know why God won't make you follow him. You say, why is that? God's purpose is that you give him something as he's taking you somewhere. God's purpose is for you to give him something as he's taking you somewhere. As he's taking, as he's got you en route to this rich, satisfying life, he fully expects that somewhere along the line that you'll give him something. You say, what would that be, Ronnie? Your heart. Now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to really, really, really do your best to listen to me. God won't make you follow him because this is his purpose. His purpose is that in route to this destination that you'll give him something. As he's taking, what is it, your heart? I want you to look at this. Numbers chapter 32. We're going to read a few verses together. And uh, this is God explaining. Now think about this. There were hundreds of thousands of Israelites 20 years and above. Out of the hundreds of thousands of, of those Israelites in that age bracket, you know how many made it into the promised land? How many exact, got to possess what God was giving, got to enjoy? What, guess how many? Two. And in the verses of reading, God explained the difference between these two guys, Joshua and Caleb, and who were going to get to go in, and the rest of the nation who were banned or forbidden from the promised land. Listen to what he said. After they, went up, after they went up to the valley of Eskel, speaking of the twelve spies, and explored the land, they discouraged the people of Israel from entering the land the Lord was giving them. Then the Lord was very angry with them, and he vowed, Of all those I rescued from Egypt, no one who is 20 years old or older will ever see the land I swore to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For they have not obeyed me. What's that word? Wholeheartedly. It goes on to say, The only exceptions are Caleb, and son of whoever there, I can't even pronounce that, and Joshua, son of none, for they have what? Wholeheartedly followed the Lord. You know what he said here? The difference was their heart. Their heart. Joshua and Caleb, somewhere along the journey, had chosen to give God their heart. You say, what does that mean? It means simply this. They chose to put God at the center of their life and allow their world to revolve around Him. That's what it means, folks. Somewhere along the way, these two men chose to put God at the center of their lives and their world would revolve around him at this point on. And when you listen to their words, you can pick up on this. When the people were making excuses, we're not following anymore. Listen, you go back and read chapter 14 and listen to what they said. What about us? What about what we want? 
What what about what's best for our kids and our spouses? Who's taking into consideration our needs? Who did their world revolve around? Themselves. Joshua and Caleb step up and say, what about God? Are you, is, anybody, is anybody thinking of God here? Is anybody taking into consideration what he might want? Why were they thinking that way? Their world revolved around God. See, this is what God expected. As I reveal myself to them in the things I do for them, As I reveal myself to them in the things that I give them. I think they're going to give me something in return. I think they're going to give me their heart. Well, guess what? Only two did. Now, here's here's what God, it's God's purpose for you. You know what he wants? As he leads you. To this rich, satisfying life. As he delivers you, provides for you, protects you, blesses you. In light of everything he does for you and everything he's ever given you, he's fully expecting that you'll give him something. He's fully expecting that you will give him your heart. And that you will make him the center of your life. And that your world will begin to revolve around him. Why would he want that? Because when he has your heart, you'll follow him because you want to. Not because you have to. And that is what God wants. That's the reason he won't make you do this. He wants you to give him your heart. So that you'll follow him because you want to. Not because you feel you have to. So. In our excursion into the wild this morning. We've learned God won't make you follow him. And here's why. God's purpose is that you give him something. As he's taking you somewhere. His purpose is that you give him your heart. Now. In light of that. What do I think you ought to do? Here's what I'm suggesting. I think it's appropriate that before we leave here today. That we be honest. Where's your heart? Have you given him your heart? Is he the very center of your life? Does your world revolve around him? Now you know there's a way to know. The Bible gives us a simple test that we can take and that's what we're about to do. And I'm going to ask you to do one thing. Be honest with yourself. You don't have to lean over and tell your neighbor, I'm guilty of that. You know, he got me on that. And the privacy of your heart, in these next few moments, be honest with yourself. Where's your heart? This test consists of four questions. Question number one, what do you think about? You say, where are you getting that at? The Bible teaches that the heart is the center of the intellect. There's a verse in the Bible that says, as a man thinks in his heart. So you can know where your heart is by answering that question, what do you think about? What occupies your mind during the week? What do you, I mean, when you're at work, what are you thinking about? Are you thinking about 
how to better yourself in your career, how to go forward? Are, are you thinking about how to get nicer things, more things? Are you thinking about how you could make more money? Are you thinking about you know, how you can lower your golf score or kill more deer? Are you thinking about your plans for the weekend and how you can make the most and of your recreational time, your rest, restorative time? I mean, what, do you, what occupies your mind during the week? Or do you think about God? Not constantly, but consistently. Do you think about what he's done for you? Do you think about what he's given to you? Do you think about what he's revealed to himself about you and the way that he's treated you? Do you think about what you could do to please him? Do you think about what you could do to serve him? Let me tell you what I believe. If we can make it through a single day, one day, without really stopping to think about God, I'd say it's an indication we've probably got a heart problem. How could you make it through a day and not think about someone whom your world revolved around? Second thing, where's your passion? The Bible also teaches that the heart is the center of our emotions. What do you love? What do you value? What are you passionate about? You know, I've been watching college football. I'm a big college basketball fan, but over the past couple of years, I find myself watching more and more college football. Two weekends ago, Lynn and I were watching Alabama play Texas A&M. They were playing at Texas, and these Aggie fans call themselves the 12th man. Let me tell you what the students will not do. Through the course of an entire football game, they will not take a seat. I watched those kids, and this is what I thought to myself. Man, they are rabid. They are, and you know, these, these, these people are crazy. They're crazy fans. And this is what I thought. You can't hide passion. You can't hide passion. A couple of years ago, I don't remember exactly what it was. Robbie, you can help me here. Uh, Clemson played Notre Dame at Clemson. Big game. They, we had this huge tropical system over us that night. I, it wasn't drizzling. It was, poor, it was raining in inches. And you know what I thought? I hate it for those people who bought tickets to that game because they're going to have to sit home tonight and watch it on TV like everybody else. Let me tell you what. The stands were packed with fans. The stands never emptied. They stayed through the whole game and fought traffic in that deluge for hours to get home. You know why they would do that? They're passionate. Anything wrong with that? No. But their pat showed you passion for their team. I did have this thought. I wonder if these people's churches were having a service in the same kind of weather, would they go and sit through a church service in a deluge like that? I got a question for you. Where's your passion? You follow your passion, you'll find your heart. Third question. What do you talk about? You know what Jesus said? Jesus said, our words are simply the overflow of our heart. What do you talk about? You don't talk about politics? Surely to God that's not what you've given your heart to. <laughs> yeah, I mean, what do you like to talk about? What do you find yourself when you're just you know, talking? What do you talk about? You know, the guys here at the staff, they won't ask me about Duke basketball anymore. Because they go, if you say anything about Duke, you've got to give him 30. He's going to talk for 30 solid minutes. You know why? I'm a passionate Duke basketball fan. 
I'll talk. I love to talk it, don't I, Jake? What do you like to talk about? Do you ever find yourself, let me just put it this way, maybe, is this something happens often, and if not, when's the last time that you and a friend were just immersed in an enthusiastic discussion about God or His Word? Does that happen? You find yourself talking with others about God? Even, even fellow church members, do you find yourself talking to them about God? Here's something he's shown me. Here's something he's done for me. You ever find yourself so filled with praise you can't contain it? No matter who's in the room, you're going to tell what God's just done for you. Or, or maybe you're with an unsafe friend and, and you just can't help it. You know, your heart is so full, it's going to overflow. And you find yourself talking to them about Jesus and, and what he did on the cross. And I'm going to tell you guys, this is, if, if words are the overflow of your heart, then go back and, and listen to yourself last week. What do you talk about? Because you can trace your words right back to your heart. Where's your heart? God fully expected that at some point in your life that you would give Him your heart. That's what He's waiting on. There's a fourth question, and man, it's just the toughest thing Jesus said, and you guys know this verse. He said, where your treasure is, there is your heart. Thank you. You want to know where your heart is? Follow your treasure. You know one of the things we, we treasure, a resource that we treasure, is our time. Hey, here's a question. Let's, let's trace your treasure. How much time do you give God in a week? Now, if you went back and looked at your schedule last week, how much time did you have him penciled in for? Guys, let me tell you this. And I'm about to really meddle, but I'm, I feel, I've got to. I feel compelled that I've got to say some things. We have one meeting a week here, one hour. How tough is it for you to be here? Is it tough? Is it tough for you to make a one-hour meeting once a week? Challenging. There are a lot of weeks we can't make it because, Ronnie, it's tough. Why is it tough? Say, we're tired. You know, our, our schedules are demanding. Sometimes Sunday's the only day we get. Listen, if you can't make a one-hour meeting once a week, I don't think the problem is fatigue, and I don't think it's the problem is the demands that have been placed. You know what I think it's indicative of? I think you've got a heart problem. I think the problem is right in here. Now, some of you, you're, you're ready to pat yourself on the back and go, I ain't got no problem. I'm there pretty much every Sunday open doors. I'm gonna... Let me ask you something. Last week, last year, we talked a lot about developing the lifelong habit of visiting with God. Taking 15 or 20 minutes a day to just have meaningful conversation with Him. But do you do that? I mean, when you look back over your week last week, can you see that you had appointments with Him where you, the two of you visited? You say, Ronnie, you, you have no idea how busy I am. Listen, if you can't find 15 or 20 minutes a day to talk to the God that made you, saved you, is guiding you, providing for you, protecting you, you can't find 15 20, Let me tell you what, that's not a schedule problem. That's a heart problem. Wherever these treasured resources flow, I can tell you, you found your heart. Uh, tell me this, if we're passionate about something, if it means a lot to us, don't we find time to do that? If you can't find time to meet with God, if you can't find time to come to church, if you can't find time to serve the God who's saved, if you just can't find time, i got to tell you something, it's not a scheduling conflict that you're up against. It is a heart problem. Where's your heart? 
Of course, we know that Jesus was primarily talking about money. Cha-ching. Now, here's where you're going to turn, really, you're going to really turn me off hard. You want to know where your heart's at? Follow the money. You say, where do you get off saying that? I'm quoting my Lord. He said, if you want to know where your heart's at, follow the money. You want to know where your heart's at? Take out your checkbook and take out a credit card bill. It won't take you long to figure it out. You should be seeing instances in there, multiple instances, where you have contributed financially to some ministry that's spreading the word about Jesus and trying to help needy people. It, it ought to be in there. It ought to be in there frequently. I think, I think the amount can say something. Not necessarily the bottom line, but the amount in proportion to what you could be giving. I think that says something. Listen, man, if you can afford season tickets to support your favorite team, but on the other hand, you just go, we can't afford to support our church. i got to tell you something, guys. That's not a financial problem. That's a heart problem. If you spend more at the golf course during the week than you contribute to your church on a Sunday morning, let me tell you, that's not a financial problem. That's a heart problem. If your last vacation costs you more than you contribute to your church in any given calendar year, that's not a financial problem. I'm telling you, that is a heart problem. Follow the money. Follow the treasure, and you'll find out where your heart is. Now, listen, guys. I was here today to ask you those questions because here's what we got to know. Our God has been expecting us to give him our heart. We got to find out if we've done that. If not, where is our heart? Let me tell you what, some of you don't like it, and this is what you're thinking. He is the most judgmental, condescending excuse for a preacher I've ever heard. Who is he? Hey, I got up this morning, I came, and here I am getting berated, beaten down, clubbed to death by my pastor. Oh, listen, I'm not condemning you. I'm not judging you. Do you understand I'm one of you? November, I'll be 60 years old. One week later, I'll celebrate my 30th anniversary serving churches in Oconee County full-time. About, about a month ago, maybe a little more, I, I heard God say something to me distinctly. He said, Ronnie, these are milestones in your life. This, you're at a critical juncture, and here's what I want you to do. i got some big things I need to say to you, and, and if, if you're going to hear them, you're going to have to make time, and you're going to have to give me the opportunity to do so. At this, this, is, this is a critical time. So I started doing that. I began to kind of listen. And I tell you, he said something to me a week ago Friday. He asked me a question. Ronnie, where's your heart? He wasn't rude, ugly, but he, he was straightforward. He was clear as a bell. Where's your heart? What occupies your mind? Where is your passion? What do you find yourself talking about all the time? Uh, where are you investing your time? Where do you invest your money? It grieved me to answer that question honestly. Because the honest answer was this. God, I've been giving my heart to some other things.
No, I'm not condemning you. I'm trying to help you. Where is your heart? I'll tell you where it needs to be. In the hands of God. So hopefully you've been honest with yourself. I'm going to ask you to do something. If you found that your heart is misplaced, why don't you be honest with him? And maybe you need to tell him, God, I've given my heart to fill in the blank. Fill in the blank. I've given my heart to. I should have given it to you, but I haven't. I given it. I gave it to this. Why don't you be honest with him? And frame that honesty in an apology. Now, I'll tell you what I've been busy doing. Uh, a house cleaning. Cleaning out a space in my heart that was supposed to be his. And his alone. I'm going to ask that everyone bow their heads together. Father, I pray that this sermon will lay heavy on our heart. You're taking us somewhere, Lord. And there's only one way we can get there, and that's to follow you. And we're not going to follow you our whole life until we give you our whole heart. I pray these words will echo in our mind over and over and over and over. Until we find ourselves in a position where we know we're right with you. That our heart is in your hands. You help us do that, God. Help us give you our heart. And like Caleb and Joshua, help us follow you wholeheartedly. In the name of Jesus, we pray together. Amen. Thank you, guys. You're dismissed.